0: This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. From ABC News headquarters, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky.
1: The relentless spread of COVID-19 is now impacting more than 500 patients in the country across nearly three dozen states. New York has the most of any state at 142, including the executive director of the Port Authority, the bi-state agency that runs the airports and other transit infrastructure. The Centers for Disease Control said uh, there have been 19 deaths in the country associated with coronavirus, mainly in Washington state and also one in California. Two members of Congress are now self-quarantining after possible exposure at the Conservative Political Action Committee conference. Florida is telling anyone who has traveled anywhere overseas to self-quarantine. It raises so many questions for all of us, and to answer them, we turn to our chief health and medical editor here at ABC News, Dr. Jennifer Ashton talking to my colleague, Diane Macedo.
2: Jen, the State Department is now advising people against cruises
3: entirely. What's so different about a cruise? I think what's important for people to understand, Diane, is that cruise ships are basically small cities at sea. Um, You can say, well, what's the difference between an airplane? Orders of magnitude greater, right? Several thousand people on a cruise ship for a prolonged period of time, whereas you have several hundred maybe for a shorter period of time on an an average airplane. Um, And then they're sharing water supply food supply air conditioning supply there's a lot of touch points with a prolonged contact for a lot of people with a lot of people. So um, in general, at baseline, we know from a public health standpoint that cruise ships are at certainly slightly higher risk for GI infections and respiratory viruses. That's been known for a long time, that's nothing new. Um, Interestingly, in researching this over the weekend, um, there's a very thorough and comprehensive rating system that the CDC has on its website, People can go on the CDC homepage and then look under VSP, which stands for Vessel Safety um, Protection. And basically, they are rated every cruise line, Diane, on their staff cleanliness, general cleanliness, their food preparation, you name it. For some perspective here, Diamond Princess scored 98. And we saw what happened with that cruise right. ship situation um, in Japan. This ship, Grand Princess, scored a 93, that's CDC data um, after a 2019 inspection. Um, As Matt said, there are over a thousand people on this cruise ship over the age of 70. In general, the average passenger who takes a cruise uh, tends to be over the age of 45 and may have preexisting medical conditions. So you're talking about a vulnerable population in a vulnerable environment and that's why it really is different than let's say the average plane trip Mm -hmm.
2: but we are also seeing large events being canceled south by southwest for example do people need to start thinking
3: about Canceling weddings or other large social gatherings like that? I I mean, listen, it's a very hard decision to make. It depends on where you are, when it's happening, who it is, who's going to be there. Um, It's risk versus benefit. It depends on the individual's level of risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about large conferences, large events being canceled, you know, above the scale, let's say, of a wedding or party, things like that, those are measures for what we call social distancing. And that's important in containing an outbreak not just to try to stop its spread, but slow the curve, buy us time, as well as protect more vulnerable populations. So when you talk about school closings, that's a perfect example. We think that children are relatively unaffected clinically by this virus. It doesn't mean they're not becoming infected. It just means they're not really showing symptoms or getting sick. But if a school-aged child goes and visits their 85-year-old grandparent and infects them, that's an example of transmission whereby a school closing can help to mitigate that. So I think you will start to see both on a local level and maybe on a more widespread level attempts at mitigation, meaning if it's decided that... The horse has already left the barn. This virus can't be stopped. How can we try to diminish its impact both on a public health level and on a societal level? And, and those things are gonna be hard decisions to make. But it seems like even
2: every little bit, the more time we can buy those medical professionals to find a treatment and a cure, the better.
3: Right, and I think it's also kind of common sense steps that we can each take as individuals. So a lot of people have been asking me personally what, what steps, if any, I've taken. You know, I have a mother who's by the way, a retired registered nurse uh, who's 80. She's healthy, luckily. But I've told my children who are in college, you know, not to go visit her for the next two weeks just because that's a low-risk kind of
1: might change well.
2: to make, and it
3: might have some benefit.
2: Just on Twitter is asking, I'll be traveling on and off the next month and live with my grandparents. What are some things I should do to protect myself and them? Great question. Mm-hmm. So,
3: um, like me, I have a lot of travel for work coming up. Right now, none of that has been canceled. But I think if you must travel for work, then you want to take some common-sense steps to try to protect not only yourself, and we've talked about what those are, you know, hand-washing, hand, hand etc., keeping yourself as healthy as you can be, in general. Don't touch your face. Uh, Exactly. Um, But in terms of exposure to more vulnerable populations, and yes, this is not only older individuals, the elderly, but it's someone with a weakened or suppressed immune system um, and certain chronic medical conditions you wanna take the steps that are low risk, potentially high benefit. So if you live with elderly people, relatives, um, you wanna obviously try to keep a little bit of distance between you and and those people. That's easy to do, um, and it may have some benefit if not to protect them against possible coronavirus influenza or other circulating viruses. So again those kind of steps you know they don't sound very high-tech, they don't sound very glamorous but it's just common sense.
2: Elizabeth wants to know how do I discuss the coronavirus with my elementary
3: school children? Great question. First of all it has to be age appropriate so um, you should answer the questions on the level that they're asked. You should try to assess what children know Um, and this goes for all age groups by the way and then at the end of the day especially with younger children, all they want to know is that they are safe. And so you want to reassure them that while there are germs around, there are always germs around, these are the steps that you can take, and this is what moms or dads are doing to help keep them safe as well. And schools are taking this really seriously, so I think that should help a little bit. It
2: must be tough to ride that line between getting them to understand the importance of things like washing their hands, but also you don't want to scare them.
3: Correct, and you don't want to... kind of drive them to an extreme reaction. But I have to say, you know, both of my kids are in college and they have said to me, I'm scared. You know, and so uh, I always say, you know, if you're the child of a nurse or a doctor, um, you are kind of in a different category because you're just used to these kind of things Mm -hmm. all the time. So if I'm hearing that from my kids, you know, that's that's to be expected. And I think just open communication, reassurance, um, and that it's important for them to know that in life you can say what you don't know and, you know, still be okay. I love
2: this next question. Should there be any fear of going to a health care facility for more routine illnesses like a sinus
3: infection or strep throat? Well, that's a really important question on a number of levels. Number one, we have to remember that, let's say, emergency rooms right now, um, they're still doing business as usual with heart attacks, strokes, accidents, the run-of-the-mill things that already have emergency rooms at capacity really at baseline. Those things need to continue. So you have to, you know, it's a balance between taking care of yourself and not endangering the lives of others or exposing others if you have to go to a health care facility for an elective test you know it depends on where you are located in the country is it are you in a hotspot city so on and so forth how important it is I wouldn't delay anything that's absolutely important I personally am seeing patients today in my medical practice so you know those kind of things still need to continue but trust your gut and you have to weigh your own risk tolerance so um, be in communication with the people who are Requesting those tests, your health care providers, um, and kind of take it from there. But it's an individual decision.
2: And Tina on Twitter wants to know Should you temporarily avoid places like hot yoga, the gym locker room, the saunas? Can germs easily hang around in those wet places?
3: Well, the answer is yes. All germs, not just coronavirus. But should you avoid them? No. I mean, I think we have to go about our daily lives just taking some few common sense precautions. And again, you know, being active and exercising is important for our immune system. So I'm still going to the gym. No.
1: Dr. Jennifer Ashton, our Chief Health and Medical Editor here at ABC News, answering questions that many of us share. And for more, we're joined now by Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, General, it's good to talk to you. The World Health Organization said today that most people who become infected with COVID-19 will recover. Uh, how should that inform our precautions?
4: Well, I'm glad we're talking about this, because it's important as we respond to COVID-19 to realize that preparation is really what's gonna keep us safe here, preparing, knowing accurate information and mobilizing around safe practices. It seems to be that around 80% of people who contract the virus uh, end up having mild cases. And so that's reassuring. We know a majority of people will be okay. But what's concerning is that there are a sizable minority of people who have more serious complications, uh, including uh, requiring hospitalization and in some extreme cases, uh, death. And what's concerning to us about this particular coronavirus is that the mortality rates uh, seem to be higher, significantly higher than they are for the flu. So while most people are okay, uh, we know that this is not uh, a simple virus. This is not just the flu. Uh, This is more serious and hence we have to respond more seriously.
1: I wanted to ask you more about that because we heard the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, say today, this is not SARS. It's not Ebola. Uh, Does it make any difference the kind of what name the, the disease has when there's an outbreak of this magnitude?
4: It does make a difference because there are some notable things that are different from this virus compared to the flu and SARS and MERS. Some of the parameters that we look at to help us figure out how much we need to worry and how aggressive we need to be in responding have to do with how easily spread the virus is and how dangerous it is once you get it. Now, in the case of COVID-19 or this novel coronavirus, it is quite easily transmitted. In fact, more easily than SARS uh, or than MERS. Uh, It is also more dangerous. It's more lethal, has a higher mortality rate than the average flu, the common flu. And so for those reasons, uh, we are particularly concerned about this one. And if you look at what's been happening in the last few weeks alone, you see evidence of this. You see the rapid spread uh, of COVID-19 around the world. Uh, you also see a death rate that's higher than what most people expected. Now the WHO put the uh, mortality rate, also called the case fatality rate, or CFR, at above 3%. By comparison, the fatality rate for the flu is 0.1%. Now, there's some reason to believe that as we get more data, that mortality rate will be lower, but it will likely still be markedly higher than for the average flu. So these parameters matter, and it's one of the reasons why we're seeing a much more aggressive response to this coronavirus.
1: I wanted to ask you about some of the response as well. I know you help advise the NCAA uh, for example, there's no cancellation of March Madness. But is that a real possibility or any of these big cancellations, whether it's South by Southwest or, or you know, the the NBA even talking about playing games uh, in front of zero fans? is are, are those conversations ones that should be happening?
4: They should be happening and they are happening. I can tell you that. And the reason they're happening is because, we are operating in a world where we don't have perfect information on two fronts. One, we are learning actively about this new coronavirus uh, each day. Uh, second, we're also learning about how many cases we have here in the United States. And we don't know the accurate number yet because, number one, we haven't had sufficient testing. Uh, and it, there's, it takes some time for all of us to get the accurate numbers here. And my concern is that as we roll out more tests, uh, which hopefully will be happening uh, over the coming days, we will start to find that there is more disease, actually, in communities across the United States. So when you put those two things together, the fact that there are likely more cases than we're hearing about and that we're learning more about this virus every day, it means that we should approach this virus with an abundance of caution. And one of the many uh, steps that professional sports associations and the NCA and other groups are thinking about taking is having modifying games so that you do not bring as many people together uh, in one place where easy transmission may may take place. They're also right now even uh, looking at more, uh, you know, at other measures just to warn people, particularly those who may have uh, chronic illnesses or who may be elderly, that they should take that into consideration when they're deciding on whether to come to a large gathering like a game.
1: Dr. Murthy, I wanted to call on your expertise as the former Surgeon General about the, the role of government here. And without necessarily getting political, how's the government doing? And should it be communicating in a different way?
4: Well, this is really important to assess, because again, for non-political reasons, we have to make sure that we lead these responses with science and with public health. And that includes having scientists and public health experts out there communicating about the facts so that people can be informed. You know, I think that in any effort uh, of this nature when you're dealing with something that's unknown, uh, it's not easy uh, to respond. And I say that having been on the inside for earlier responses like Ebola and Zika and seeing just how challenging it can be to operate without full information. Uh, we know that there were some difficulties early on in getting testing right. Uh, we're still in the process of rectifying those uh, from our government standpoint and hopefully they will have gotten it right by this week over the coming weeks. But, you know, I think that was a setback, um, no doubt. But I think what we're starting to see now is uh, we're starting to see more public health experts from the government out there uh, speaking more openly about what needs to be done. Uh, we're starting to see partners mobilize around the government uh, to, from, you know, sports associations to companies to community organizations that are coming together to help spread the message uh, to their constituents about how we need to keep ourselves safe. The other thing that's really important, the government has done, is to help us move forward in the search for a vaccine. Now, a vaccine at the earliest would be wouldn't be available until at least a year, probably closer to eighteen months, if not more. So that is a long-term solution. Uh, but in the near term, you know, we have to keep the, the, what the government needs to do is make sure that we, as uh, the public, are getting accurate information. needs to make sure that. Hospital systems and healthcare facilities have adequate tests and that they have support that they need uh, because they're going to be stressed in terms of their capacities as cases increase. And finally, the government needs to do some long-term thinking about the economic fallout that's going to result from the response. We're going to have people who are going to be out of work, right? Lyft drivers, Uber drivers, other, you know, people who are nannies and domestic workers who are not going to have pay because they're going to have to miss work. And how are those people going to be supported? How are stores and other businesses going to survive when people uh, should decide to stay home? We need to think about how to deal with the economic recession uh, that potentially could result uh, from this outbreak.
1: Dr. Murthy, we appreciate it very much. Dr. Vivek Murthy is the former Surgeon General of the United States and segues perfectly to ABC's chief business and economics correspondent, Rebecca Jarvis, because The economy is uh, unquestionably taking a hit from coronavirus. At the moment, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down more than 1,700 points, more than 6%. Trading was halted right after the opening bell when the S&P 500 hit a benchmark down more than 7%, triggering a circuit breaker. Uh, Rebecca, that's part of the problem, right? We don't yet know the full economic consequences of coronavirus.
5: Exactly, Erin. And we, we don't know enough about the coronavirus itself. So much of what Wall Street is looking to is looking to the health experts, looking to elected officials to for clarity, for a better understanding of the disease itself to fully understand what the economic impact will be. We, we've really seen this disease come in economic waves. The first economic wave was what happened in China when Factories were shut down, manufacturing was shut down. That had a supply impact for a number of companies, big and small, Apple, Nike, uh, their products, what they manufacture in China was stalled. So, too, was the case for a number of small businesses, which manufacture everything from bikes to handbags to lotions uh, to gardening supplies in China. The factories have been shut down there, Uh, not all of them, but many of them have been shut down there for weeks. And there you have a number of U.S. businesses that can't plan accordingly for their companies. They don't know when they'll be getting these products. That was economic wave one. Wave two was the number of companies that have made adjustments to their plans and their policies as the of the coronavirus has occurred. So with companies like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon telling their employees to stay home, with all of the companies that have now canceled major conferences, South by Southwest con- uh, canceled, that's wave two. And that has more to do with our behavior here. And the final key question is, how do American consumers respond in terms of their spending and their habits? If the spread continues to grow here in the U.S., and that is a major economic question because the U.S. consumer, how we behave, has very much to do with what our economy looks like. Our spending accounts for 70 percent of the U.S. economy, and that question has been lingering over stocks for weeks now with the uncertainty of the virus itself, Aaron.
1: ABC's Rebecca Jarvis, our chief business and economics correspondent. We turn to the White House and ABC's Karen Travers, because if you ask President Trump, Karen, this is all made up hype by the media.
6: Yeah, the president this morning, Aaron, was tweeting that it's the media that's trying to inflame the situation. He says it's far beyond what the facts would warrant. The president essentially was saying nothing to see here. And he did write, nothing is shut down, life and the economy go on. And he was comparing the number of cases and deaths from coronavirus to the flu. Within minutes of the president tweeting that, his health and human services secretary, Alex Azar, was on television and had a very different message. He's says, make no mistake, this is a very serious health problem, and nobody is trying to minimize that. But that certainly seems to be what the president is doing. I will note that the president saying nothing is shut down and life goes on. uh, There are things that are closed. There are schools across the country in different areas that have uh, closed for some length of time. There are businesses that are, of course, doing work at home options. There's a high school that is less than a mile from the White House that is closed today because of a student having contact with a possible case. They're cleaning it, disinfecting it, and they're scheduled to reopen tomorrow. But it's striking to see the president essentially not see what's happening around the country.
1: And. How is that going to inform the government response going forward, Karen?
6: Well, the president is the public messenger on all of this. And I think it's been notable to see when he has appeared with the CDC director or his HHS secretary. They are echoing his message sometimes when they're with him. You have senior officials on Friday here at the White House telling us that this is contained. But then you see the Surgeon General say, no, the virus is spreading. That is leading to very significant mixed messages. That is confusing Americans. It's a confusing report who are trying to sort through what the line is from the White House at any given hour. I'll also note that very early this morning, the president was on Twitter and insisted there are no mixed messages coming from the administration.
1: ABC's Karen Travers with us from her post at the White House. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average meantime continues its drop now down about 1,700 points. Rebecca Jarvis is our chief business and economics correspondent who had told us earlier that the best thing you can do is simply to hang on and wait it out. But the uncertainty over all of this, perhaps the mixed messages from the government, contribute to investor response. Karen Travers is with us from her post at the White House. uh, And Alex Stone uh, joins us as well uh, from his post in Los Angeles. Uh, And Alex, California is still watching a cruise ship parked off of Oakland.
0: Yeah, and it's actually moving in right now, Aaron. The Grand Princess, we believe the ship will arrive in the next couple of hours into Oakland. First off are going to be those who are on board who have COVID-19. Twenty-one people on board confirmed at this point. That's going to take some time to do to make sure they don't expose anybody else. Then California residents who are not sick will come off. They're going to go to Travis Air Force Base for quarantine. Then non-California residents They're going to be flown elsewhere to Georgia and go to Texas as well. This whole operation likely going to take a couple of days, but still a lot of uncertainty, Aaron, about how the whole thing's going to go.
1: And and Alex, uh, real quick, the State Department says don't take cruises.
0: Yeah, State Department, Governor Newsom here. We're hearing it over and over again now from government officials saying now is not the time to take a cruise. That If you're planning it. You may want to look at canceling that cruise, especially if you're older. If you have any of the pre-existing conditions, they say avoid going on a cruise.
1: ABC's Alex Stone with us from Los Angeles. As he says, that cruise ship should be parking in Oakland sometime later today. Stocks are plunging. It's a mix of coronavirus, the oil market. Mixed messages from the government are coming out as well. And people are making their own decisions about how to adjust their behavior as the relentless spread of coronavirus continues in the United States. I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to a special presentation from ABC
0: News. ABC News, honored winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice.
3: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.